Welcome to the Decent People Podcast, a production of Decentral Media, where we're committed to telling the stories of the founders, builders, and visionaries who are creating a new decentralized economy and internet experience. You guys know it as Web3 or blockchain, but we're going to bring you the smartest and most interesting people in the space for intimate conversations that reveal their background, how they got into crypto in the first place, and what they're doing today to make a decentralized future a reality. Thanks so much for joining us, and check out our site at Decentral.io. Now, to the show. Hi there, and sorry for the interruption, but I screwed up the intro to my guest today. Uh, Amanda Cassett is a wonderful person I've known for a long time in Web3, and she was instrumental in helping consensus get uh, Ethereum out to the world, but uh, she's much more than that. She is the co-founder of Serotonin, which is a Web3 professional services provider, and she's also the co-founder of Mojito, which is an NFT infrastructure platform. Um, I didn't mean to to imply that she's only been doing stuff uh, from the consensus days. I apologize about that, and please check out the show notes for more information on both Mojito and Serotonin. Now, to the show. Hi, and welcome to the latest episode of the Decent People podcast. I'm your host, Matt Lysing. Today, I'm joined by somebody who I've known for quite a while, uh, maybe one of the longest person people I've known in crypto. Uh, it's Amanda Cassett, who uh, was with Consensus at a very important time in the Ethereum uh, timeline when they were just getting going. Consensus was is, of course, the... Uh, the a- application um, studio run by Joe Lubin, who's one of um, the Ethereum co-founders. Uh, Amanda, how are you doing? Doing great. Uh, thanks for having me on, Matt. Excited yeah, to be here. Thank you for, yeah, thank you for being here. I uh, wish we could have be doing this at Roberta's Pizza in Brooklyn, where I think was the first place we met and was right around the corner from Consensus. Uh, so if we can't have a giant pie in front of us, I guess we'll have to make do with this. That was a friendship setting trip to Roberta's. I think that must have been fall of 2016. Yeah, yeah, it was it was early. Um, and I can still smell how that restaurant smelled. And, and it was <laughs> that place cool, just, just a wonderful place. Um, it was funny, I was looking at your LinkedIn and I noticed that your avatar there uh, is, is, a, is a woman holding a slice of pizza. So <laughs> made me laugh. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Um, my friend Aubrey Strobel recently tweeted, every time you post on LinkedIn, a child somewhere falls off their bike, which is pretty much how I feel about the LinkedIn platform. You'll notice if you go to my LinkedIn, it says, I do not respond to LinkedIn messages. So I thought I'd throw a funny avatar up on there that actually says unfollow on the t-shirt. I was going to say that. I want that t-shirt. Pizza. Yeah, unfollow. Yeah. And it's, it's a sad girl's bar um, NFT. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you've been in New York for a long time, um, but I think you might have grown up in Washington, D.C. Is that correct? Oh, yes, I did grow up in Washington, D.C. I moved to New York when I was 18. But before that, I lived in the District of Columbia. That's a it's a really nice place. I don't know if many people think it's a nice place to live, but I've, I've always enjoyed my time there. My uncle has lived there forever. And uh, I, I think it's just, just a wonderful city and, and the suburbs around it are really nice. Did you have a nice time there? Yeah, I had a reasonably reasonably good time growing up there. I um, My parents worked in a 
DC institutions uh, as scientists and researchers and mathematicians, but they worked in those nonetheless, which is why I grew up there at the World Bank and NIH respectively, where my mom actually knew um, Fauci. I think he was her boss's boss at some point. She was a sleep researcher. Wow. And my dad was a computer scientist at the World Bank. And so they were um, involved in, I guess, what I'd jokingly call the deep state. So working for government-related uh, institutions and agencies, but not having been elected and not being political. And it was a great place to grow up. It's gotten a lot better since then. A lot of great restaurants moving to D.C., hearing great things. I don't have the occasion to go back a lot, but um, people I know there really like it. Yeah. Um, my aunt worked for the World Bank as well. She actually traded currencies for the World Bank's own account. So, you know, obviously they're making loans and doing all this stuff. And she was sort of like on the desk to like if they needed yen or they needed, you know, renminbi or whatever. Like she was the person who was like trading for the World Bank and the currency markets, um, which I always found fascinating. Yeah, super interesting. I mean, my dad was born in 1943 and grew up. Um, with the generation that was building the big American institutions that came after World War II, mm -hmm. the generation that built the United Nations, that built the World Bank and IMF. And at that point, for smart people, the obvious thing to do was to go in and help bolster and strengthen these exciting new American institutions. And that's a fun thing to remember for us in this crypto space. We often think of our institutions as dinosaurs, as things to break, as things to compete with. Um, but just a couple generations ago, people had a lot of faith in them and were spending their careers building them up. Yeah, it's something I've been thinking about recently as well. Um, what the question comes up, what are the institutions and what are the sort of guardrails that we wanna bring into Web3 that already exist in the world? Because you know, to, to some extent, there's a choice. Um, I think some things are needed, but then what do you want to sort of remake into a decentralized Web3 kind of world? Uh, it's an interesting thing to think about. Um, so with your, with your parents as, as scientists and researchers, were you into school? Like was, was it a, a heavy academic life uh, around your house when you were a kid? Yeah, very much so. Um, I understood the point of my existence as being getting good grades and getting into a good college. Um, so yes, very much so. And it's funny, um, that reward mechanism that was installed in me, I almost took it too far. Um, in, in college, I studied things that I thought would get me good grades more than uh, trying to genuinely uh, pursue knowledge. And if I could go back, I would have studied really different things because I ended up never going to grad school. And the whole point of getting good grades in college is to try to get into grad school. Um, and so looking back, knowing what I know now, I would have just tried to learn interesting, useful stuff rather than try to game the system. What are some classes you wish you'd taken? Oh yeah, I mean, I had to teach myself everything I know about coding and computer science, which is not that much compared to you know a PhD computer scientist or someone that's a developer as their career, um, but I would have I would have taken computer science. I would have tried to learn about the history of technology and the history of science really rigorously, 
and I would have uh, learned to code through school. I ended up teaching myself some coding because I ended up meeting the founders of Code Academy who were at Columbia with me. And I, I took a couple of their courses and learned, learned some light coding, but I wish, um, I wish I had that computer science foundation. I think that would have really helped with what I ended up doing. Had that been an interest of yours prior to college? Like as a kid, were you into computers or what, what, were, what were you doing for fun? Not at all. I was, um, I was into sports. I was into playing with friends, reading, fantasy worlds, computer games, gaming for sure. Mm -hmm. um, I, loved, I loved strategy games, things like um, Rome Total War and also board games like chess and like Scrabble. Um, but I was, um, yeah, just a happy, normal kid, mostly. And tennis player? And tennis, yeah, I was a big tennis player. Uh, that's great. Yeah, we should hit sometime when uh, we're both in the same space. Oh, yeah, always done. Always tennis done player too. Yeah. Um, and so, in so then, tell me a little bit, like, where, where did you think you were headed uh, when you were in college? What was the, what was the, what was the idea uh, if, if grad school wasn't it? What, did something get in the way or, or did you just not want to go to grad school? Yeah, something got in the way. So I, um, I had kind of a disastrous family scenario my last couple of years of high school that I'm not going to go into too deeply, but it, it left me kind of on my own. And I was just very fortunate and felt very fortunate to get into a great college like Columbia. And so go, getting to go there, I felt, I felt that I'd been rescued. Uh, and that that was helping me clear the way for a great future. I think that'll sound anachronistic to people um, growing up now, maybe, who don't think as highly and don't value as highly the you know Ivy League education, and maybe it's becoming less valuable. I would certainly believe that. Um, but you know, at the time, I felt really rescued by it. My parents both had PhDs, and so I assumed I would get a PhD or some kind of professional degree, maybe a, maybe a law degree, um, maybe a PhD in whatever I was most interested in. Um, a couple of things happened. One is I just saw the value of advanced degrees in the job market plummeting. Mm -hmm. And the things I was most interested in were things around storytelling. I ended up majoring in English and also studying a bunch of statistics, but going and getting a PhD and becoming an English professor felt to me like joining a monastery and not the way that I could add as much as I wished to add uh, and, and also kind of get the feelings and interactions that I wanted to get from the world. And so I really optimized for studying and getting great grades in college. Um, also made a lot of great friends, um, but ended up deciding not to go to grad school because I started doing something else and there was just never time. Uh, yeah. Right after college, I started working at HuffPost. Um, I'd worked on the school newspaper at Columbia, The Spectator, and Ariana Huffington had come to speak at a dinner for The Spectator. And I basically said to her something along the lines of, please hire me, I'll do whatever. Uh, and uh, apparently this was somewhat compelling or remembered or perhaps not because I ended up applying kind of through a different track. Um, 
and ended up getting to work pretty closely with her and her team uh, building the, the part of HuffPost that really had to do with Ariana. Um, I watched the, the team that was working on her books, kind of pivoting her persona from really being focused on politics. She'd run for governor of California to a focus on wellness uh, with her first books on sleep. She was really excited about meditation and TM. Uh, so I watched that happening. Also at HuffPost, I really learned about, and this was around 20, 2013, um, I learned about the media business model and what I ended up thinking was broken about it. Basically, what was clear was, so aggregation was something I saw really up close. Journalistic organizations would pay reporters substantial, at the time, salaries to do primary reporting and field reporting, but then in a digital context, an aggregator would summarize that story or that story's findings. And yes, they would hyperlink to that story and cite their sources, but the aggregators would end up gobbling up a bunch of the traffic, therefore page views, therefore advertising dollars without having made the investment in that primary reporting. Yeah. Um, and so although they didn't necessarily build reputations to rival the reputations of the storied journalistic outlets that were actually making this kind of investment in primary reporting, they were able to gobble up a disproportionate share of that digital traffic, uh, which is really interesting to learn. The other thing that was interesting was um, the kind of sliding scale between official sanctioned uh, J school journalism and contributors and user generated content. And this was around the time we were really growing um, the Huffington Post blog. Mm -hmm. And the deal with the blog was you can create, have it, have your story live on a Huffington Post domain, um, which is going to be legitimizing to you in some way, and it might help you get visibility in some way, might or might not. Um, but there wasn't financial remuneration for that. And that's a deal that some creators wanted to take. Um, HuffPost and you know, other, other similar platforms, it wouldn't have made sense for them to pay for all these stories because the average quality was so low and didn't bring in any traffic. Um, but it was interesting because when those stories actually did perform well in terms of traffic um, and therefore ad revenue, the margins are 100%. Mm -hmm. because you're not actually investing anything in that journalism. So you might as well have as many people blogging on your platform as possible, have the margins be 100%, 99.9% of the content never gets any traction, but that small percent that does, A, may perform even better than reported stories because it's so, because first person style narrative content can be so compelling. Um, and second, um, you have these incredible margins on it. So it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So th that was the second thing I learned that there, that, that the role of user generated content on the web is going to be really interesting and powerful as an economic tool, as a social force, 
And that figuring out how to monetize it correctly is quite the challenge. Do you think anyone has figured that out yet to date? Yeah, so I think, I think, that, I think there's a more complicated answer, which is no one's figured out the right way to price it, but I think there now exists the correct price discovery mechanism that will evolve and correctly price content over time. So basically what like, I, um, <clears throat> excuse me, is that like a paywall or? No, I, I actually mean something deeper and kind of more nuanced, which is I think, so in sort of classic heyday of web two, the value of content, visual content, written content, I believe was artificially depressed um, because it was contained inside the media business model that was subservient to the distribution platforms like Facebook, like Google, but also to a lesser degree, Twitter, et cetera. And so the content wouldn't get direct pricing exposure to the market because it was intermediated first by the media company, um, which has to negotiate for its own interests and maybe has doesn't have a lot of leverage to do so with the distribution platform. So it's double intermediated in terms of being able to directly access price discovery mechanisms. And so it's very difficult to price that accurately. And the media companies have so much trouble because they're so dependent on the distributors getting good pricing for what they're, for what they're offering um, that it was doubly depressed. And so you see with what's happening in the creator economy right now with Web3 and NFTs, you see um, a fight in the market for content to liberate itself from the dying media business models that it's been stuck inside of and to expose itself directly for price discovery to the market. And NFTs in the creator economy aren't the only example of that. I think the, the growth of things like Substack are an example of that. You're seeing this fragmentation in general because the collective institutions like a media company aren't able to achieve the pricing that an individual creator inside of them would be able to achieve if they were doing price discovery on their own. So you see this fragmentation, whether that's individual creators selling their subscriptions to their newsletters or selling their um, NFTs or selling their videos individually or in smaller, more fragmented groups. Um, and so they're now, their web three is one of the tools enabling that price discovery mechanism between the creator and the market to become more direct, which is a, I think, a better mechanism for price discovery of that content. And one can argue now that some of the content is overpriced now because th that mechanism discovery is so exciting that perhaps that's led to overpricing in some cases, not in others. Um, but I think it'll, it'll find its, water will find its own level there. And then the funny thing is creators will band together in groups because maybe it makes more sense for one of them to spend time thinking about monetizing and getting price from the market. And maybe it makes sense for some of them to spend more time creating. And then you just see the foundation there of new, uh, new institutions. Yeah. Uh, and eventually that gets big enough and becomes the new version of the New York Times. You get 
you get 10,000 Substack creators, 10,000 NFT artists all deciding to band together and, and have certain people in their group specialize in sales um, and marketing. And then suddenly you have a, a, new, a new version of, of Bloomberg or the Wall Street Journal or the Times. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, probably run by a DAO. Um, and I, I think to your point, and the mainstream press, when I think they missed the internet, you know, uh, they, they did not know how to trans, transition. And once they finally did, they, I think they were freaked out and they gave everything away. So everything was free. And that got people used to, you know, being able to read the New York Times suddenly for free. And that, I think they, that was a struggle that they had to kind of um, re-engineer a, a revenue model after they had, you know, allowed people just to sort of have it for nothing. Um, but I, I was also really interested to see, and I did not know this about you, that you actually were an intern at the New Yorker magazine. That's true. That's I, true. I want to um, hear all about it. What What is it like inside the New Yorker magazine? <laughs> you know, I um, I loved interning there in college. Again, in college, I thought I was going to be an academic or thought I was going to be a writer. Um, and I learned so much from the New Yorker. And mostly what I learned was that the starting salaries are in the 20,000s. And it's really only a place people can work if they come from super wealthy families yeah. or if they're willing to do some other job on the side or if they have figured out some kind of way to live in New York very inexpensively that I certainly struggle to, to figure out or be able to imagine. And that was my first signal that I wanted to do something else and that there was something broken about this because I wanted to contribute what I had to offer to a sector of our economy that was growing as beautiful and as precious as I found the New Yorker. Because if you as an institution aren't able, or you as a young person aren't able to build a, a life for yourself, you're gonna to be too vulnerable uh, to the different forces that could come for you as an individual, but also you as an institution are going to be really vulnerable to, uh, to trends and to capture by, by the popular ideologies. And I think that uh, a lot of our media and literary institutions have been captured by various ideologies. And I think the fact that their business models were in the place that they were, enabled some of that capture to happen. Um, but yeah, that was that was a lot of my learning. Really smart people, really brilliant literary minds, wonderful writers, wonderful reporters. As a young person there, the economics, not, not just personally, but of the whole business were, were so alarming that it sent me reeling in the direction of, trying to learn about digital journalism, which sent me toward trying to learn about the internet um, and creators on the internet, which is what sent me straight into the arms of crypto and Ethereum eventually. Yeah, it's funny. Um, the way I describe what I'm trying to do with Decentral is I tell people I'm, I'm trying to make the New Yorker for crypto. So, you know, all of that sort of passion and writing and reporting and, and long profiles and shorter pieces about the culture. I just think it's a wonderful model, but um, I promise that I will pay people more uh, than okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but, but also you, I'm not complaining about that being the wrong salary. 
I think that was the right sound. Well, that's what I made when I came out of grad school. I was I was not making uh, I was making around eighteen thousand dollars a year after taxes in the Bay Area uh, as a as a reporter. Um, and I, I mean that's almost it's almost impossible to live on that in in like the San Francisco Bay Area or New York City or you know a big city. So it's not uncommon, but I don't think that makes it right. It's sort of like teachers don't get paid well, but that doesn't mean that, that we shouldn't pay them a heck of a lot more, um, so. I tend to think of these things in terms of supply and demand. Um, and if, if based on the business model of a company, that's the margin that they can pay for an entry-level employee, then I, I don't really judge them morally for, for paying the amount that their business model spits out. Um, whether I personally wish to do that with my life in my 20s is another question, and I decided to do something different. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I, did, I also saw that you read um, the, I guess you would read submissions for like fiction, and I'm, I'm <laughs> oh yeah. You might have you might have read one of my stories because I was under the misguided impression that I could get a short story published in the New Yorker, which I think you a know, lot of people can. are under that misperception. You can you can get a short story published in the New Yorker. It's just really rare. Yeah. So they do actually pull from the sorry to say the, the slush pile. Everyone no, I know exactly. I have they, I still have the rejection letters. I kept them. They have interns reading through it. Um, sometimes other people reading through it. Um, this was at the time. I don't know what they do now, but yeah, sometimes they publish something from there. So it is possible. Yeah. The biggest thrill I got was maybe like a handwritten note on a rejection letter that, you know, they liked it, but just wasn't right for the, the magazine. So. Yeah, they ended up writing an amazing story. It was Nick Palmgarten who wrote a really beautiful story about uh, Joe and Vitalik and the origins of Ethereum. And I actually appear very briefly in this story eating a taco. <laughs> uh, but Nick Palmgarten did a wonderful job and they do some fabulous reporting there. Yeah, I've read that. It's really good. Um, so then you're, you're, you're becoming disillusioned, but you've gotten a really good inside view on the mainstream media and the, the revenue models. Um, so tell me what, what's next? Did you try to- I don't to know if I'm even disillusioned. I'm not judging these institutions. I'm just trying to find something that's growing to learn so that I can grow and so that I can be part of something that's important and interesting. So I'm not so much disillusioned as searching, um, trying to figure out what's growing. And it seems at the time like digital media is growing. So I'm heading to HuffPost. It seems at HuffPost, like the thing that's growing is online creators um, and experiments in how payments and monetization works uh, in a world of online creators. And so um, I start my own company. I leave HuffPost because I think that knowing everything I know about um, the creator platform there, I can figure out a way to monetize it that actually works for creators. So we set up Slant. Uh, I'm one of the co-founders and it's a decentralized media platform before that even really existed as a concept. And we figured why not set up a similar blogging platform where anybody can contribute, kind of inspired by HuffPost, contributor network, kind of inspired by Medium, which was in its early days. Um, let anyone contribute content. 
and then monetize that content by taking home 70% of the advertising revenue. We'll serve ads across the site and we take home 30%. Makes perfect sense. Why not do Medium that way? Why not do HuffPost blog that way? Why not do uh, BuzzFeed that way? Well, I found out why not. Uh, and the answer why not is because of payment processing. And I just read a great book about the origins of PayPal um, by my friend, Jimmy Sony, and have so much respect for the early payments industry and how payments came to the web. But these guys, whether they're Venmo, whether they're PayPal, whether they're some kind of B2B uh, intermediary helping someone like us at Slant get our payments out to our writers, they're taking a huge chunk of the spread. And that basically makes micropayment-based business models not work practically, even if they make sense logically. That being said, Slant did very well uh, in terms of traffic and in terms of building a big creator community because we targeted um, journalism school students and college students. And this was around the time that Black Lives Matter was starting on college campuses. It was around the time of Me Too starting on college campuses. A lot of these first person narrative accounts were getting a lot of eyeballs, getting a lot of traffic. And so we had specialized in first person accounts coming out of college campuses, not only on those two topics, but on all kinds of topics. And that ended up working out really well in some cases for creators and also for us. But yes, because of the kind of micropayment based business model, the, the overall business logic eventually didn't make sense. But trying to think about this had sent me out into the world of payments and learning how to monetize creator economies. Um, and so that became my rabid focus that ended up leading me toward the Ethereum team. Yeah, so crypto had been out by, like Bitcoin had been around by now. Um, what, what, what was your first experience with it? Did you know about Bitcoin or what, what was, how did you first come into like crypto? Yeah, so I'd heard about Bitcoin. I wasn't really in the target demographic of the message board, the esoteric message boards where people were first talking about Bitcoin. I didn't identify as someone who was a big techie. I, I, I was going in that direction, but I started with storytelling. I started with journalism and then the market pushed me to learn about that. And I, I allowed myself to be pushed to learn about it. Uh, so I wasn't part of that original community, though, of course, I wish I had been. I really learned about it for the first time through Ethereum. And I was hanging out in Brooklyn. I was living in Brooklyn. I was going to meetups. I was going to events for tech founders. And I ended up kind of bumping into uh, Sam Cassett, Andrew Keys, Joe Lubin, who were hanging out in Brooklyn and New York and who were some of the early Ethereum folks, and they were starting to talk about it. And it kind of blew my mind because it Ethereum solves the problem that my little startup had, but so many other problems um, or tricky issues that I could imagine, whether it's something like remittances, whether it's something like supply chain tracking, whether it's something as simple as you know, sending payments from one person to another, but then actually building financial applications on top of it. Bitcoin made immediate sense to me as a system for securely in a decentralized permissionless fashion, sending money around from account to account, kind of like email. But then Ethereum builds on top of that in such a powerful way 
by actually enabling sophisticated financial products, actually enabling real application building. And so that just totally blew my mind. And I realized that I was going to need to drop everything I was doing and join the circus, which I did. And how, like, how did you get into um, consensus? Were they hiring and it was just the right time, the right place? Yeah, to say that consensus was so rigid and structured as, you know, that they were hiring or that they had a job posting for someone with my skill set, um, I think underplays what a community it was and what a movement it was. Um, it wasn't that, it, it didn't operate at the time, sometimes it did, um, with that kind of level of rigidity. They didn't have a help wanted, CMO needed sign out yeah. front. Yeah, I've seen pictures um, of the early days you guys didn't even have furniture. People were like sitting on the floor of the office. <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, it's great beanbag chairs. Uh, the floor can have all kinds of interesting furnishings too. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I was mostly contributing and hanging out with the crew and talking to them about Ethereum and how to tell the story of Ethereum, how to talk to the media about Ethereum and consensus and consensus early products. And um, it was a it was gradual, and then all at once, I spoke to Joe, and we had a kind of a formal interview, more or less, at the consensus office. And I said I'd like to run marketing, um, and I think that I can help organize this information to be mimetic and exciting to big groups of people. And um, I remember saying Starbucks and the MLB. And then um, years later, years later, every one of these big institutions that we talked about back then, almost as a joke, has in some way adopted Ethereum or adopted Web3. And it's been just wild to see. Yeah, and I think your story is a story that doesn't get told very often, like from the marketing and the, the PR point of view. Um, yeah. What's that been like and, and how has it changed since those early days in like 2016? Um, of course, I completely forgot to mention in the intro that you have your own firm now. You've co-founded both um, Serotonin, which is an amazing sort of all access um, ser or service business for Web3 people and as well as um, Mojito, which is, is more uh, focused on the NFT space. Yeah. But I'm so happy what, to go and get very specific about what those things are. But yeah, just, just, just your first question about what that story was like and especially kind of what it was like, what it's like to not have that story told. I was, I was hanging out with a pretty well-known publication in the crypto space. I was talking to a reporter about it and he said, just by the way, the reason people don't um, report on serotonin very often is that it's known as a marketing company. And essentially in the media, you pretend that marketing and PR don't exist because that way it feels like the people in the media have discovered all of this information, have done this investigative reporting and have learned that there's this new launch happening or have these incredible deep relationships at these companies where they learned that, uh, you know, this, this about this new story, it makes sense for media companies to pretend as if there's no intermediation there and that they've gone ahead and discovered all those things themselves. Um, and that's great and that's fine. I think the PR industry and the marketing industry intentionally sets it up to be that way. 
where our goal isn't to promote ourselves. Our goal is to promote um, and amplify our clients and customers and to connect them with the kinds of media opportunities and the kinds of partnerships um, that, that they want and that, and that wish to, to use their products. So yeah, the, the role of PR and marketing often is um, missing uh, in the story. But for, for a reasonable reason and for, for a knowable reason, and it, it, it makes logical sense. Um, that being said, a huge amount of what we did at Consensus in those early days was marketing. Um, you could say that every single startup that Consensus invested in at the time, and some went fabulously well and turned into wonderful businesses, like a, a MetaMask or an Infura, um, and some of them didn't work. 99% of startups fail. I think Consensus had a much better track record than that, um, but obviously some didn't work. But every single, every single project we embarked on, we also marketed as a use case for Ethereum, mm -hmm. and that inspired many subsequent projects that ended up growing the ecosystem, even if that first project didn't work out. I think a great example is like Ujo, um, That's what I was just thinking. Mm -hmm. um, and then, and then now before it's time. Yeah, before it's time. But you see the team that built that now on the advisor list of companies like Royal and Audius, because it's a real ancestor uh, of those companies, and it laid some of that groundwork. So there were a number of there were a number of projects like that at Consensus that didn't work at the time, but that were great marketing, not just for. Uh, the potential of Ethereum, but for bringing new entrepreneurs into the space that wanted to pursue a certain idea or or explore a certain uh, line of business themselves. Um, there, there were like attempts at um, blockchain and real estate tokenization. Um, that was huge. And now you're starting to see a bunch of uh, that space is really swarming. I think that's going to really grow. Um, yeah. And, 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 and then the other thing about the marketing story is it wasn't just about telling the story of Ethereum through all of these different use cases and projects. It was also about building a new generation of marketing best practices that are suited to Web3. Um, in Web3, marketing is really about incentive system design because essentially what is Web3 if not the substrate uh, for building incentive alignments um, and so a lot of it's about designing the incentives for building communities to be self-marketing, as opposed to assuming that you need to do all of the marketing and messaging yourselves. Mm -hmm. It's about empowering local leaders in distributed communities to not only have the spare change for beer and pizza uh, to serve at the meetup, but also to have the uh, resources, the, the logos, the branding, how to talk about it, the content to have great projects going through the San Francisco meetup, the Bucharest Romania meetup, and wherever you live, wherever there's an Ethereum meetup, to have that incredible content coming through and presenting. And we really empowered that nerve network of local meetups um, as one of our strategies. Uh, and it was really a lot of it was really very community-based. It wasn't like running a comms department top-down where you get to control what everybody says. No, Ethereum is decentralized. Consensus certainly didn't control it. 
um, or the messaging around it in those early days, similar to how it doesn't now. But what we did at the time was arm a lot of different voices in the community with um, what was going on lately, what what and, and how we were framing it and how we were talking about it and what the terminology we were going to use to describe it. So it'd be simpler for people to understand. Mm -hmm. So you've been in it almost from the very beginning. The, the Dow was in 2016 and then the hard fork. There's the price run up in 2017, then the crash, the crypto winter. Um, and if, you know, then DeFi kind of came back around. NFTs have happened. Like, I'm curious if you have a certain period um, that's your favorite or, or something that felt like, what, what was your favorite thing to go through in all those different stages? Yeah, so there's a huge electricity to the first big Ethereum price run up for sure. I think, you know, a lot of people don't remember how that happened, but here's how it happened. In February 28th, 2017, we launched the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance, and that was the spark that lit the whole fire. We announced that all oh, of the- Tell people what that is. Oh yeah. Um, we built this coalition that included companies like JP Morgan. It included um, Credit Suisse. Microsoft. And there, Microsoft was a big leader of it. Intel, um, just an incredible group. Um, and that group announced all at once that it was creating a set of standards for enterprise implementations of Ethereum and all these companies publicly shared with the world that they had departments or teams or groups that were experimenting with Ethereum. Why was this a big deal? Well, before the launch of the EEA, if you Googled Ethereum, you would get Vitalik, 19 year old Russian born prodigy and that appeals to some people, but it might not appeal to a bank president. It might not appeal to someone in the media who's gonna cover it. Uh, it might not appeal to um, a, a business leader. And so what happened was after the EEA launched, you Google Ethereum and you get, I don't know, Julio Fara from Santander, or you get York Rhodes or Marley Gray from Microsoft or Amber Baldette from JP Morgan. And it legitimized it a huge amount. And the market ended up conflating the exploratory groups by all these businesses into Ethereum as support for ETH in some way. And so a lot of that energy flowed into ETH, uh, the token, um, demand, demand for the token. And so be, right? Like the, the fact that all these companies were interested in it was a real confirmation of its potential value. And so I think it makes sense that it happened that way. And today in this space, there are some funny lessons because um, sometimes you hear like real kind of diehard Web3 folks annoyed that big brands or uh, established companies are going into Web3 or doing something in Web3. And those people forget that it was actually that cadre of companies that made Ethereum in a way. Mm -hmm. um, by offering that stamp of legitimacy at a moment when it needed that and it didn't, it didn't exist yet. And, and that moment of launching the EEA, which was covered in the New York Times, in Bloomberg, in the Wall Street Journal, in all these places where Ethereum hadn't appeared or had barely appeared before that, um, it brought in a whole wave of community members, of buyers of the ETH token, 
but also of entrepreneurs, of investors, and of engineers and developers. I think, you know, if you, if you take your average Solidity developer today and ask how they got into the space, if they got into the space in 2017, they're not going to say, I got into the space because of the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance. Um, it doesn't work at that conscious level, but that set off this wave of press and yep. this wave of information <clears throat> spreading that ended up bringing in lots of builders. What those builders built ended up getting coverage and information spreading and social media memetics that brought in another wave of builders, that brought in another wave of entrepreneurs. And so that was really the, the first kind of uh, motion that started spinning that flywheel in the, in the market. Yeah, and, and let's not forget that the ICO boom was going on then as well. Initial coin offerings were taking off where <clears throat> you had to have Ether to buy into all of those, which was mm -hmm. a huge thing. Bitcoin was also going up to um, $20,000 for the first time. Um, and yeah, it was a crazy, crazy couple of years there. I, I remember it well. And speaking of like traditional institutions coming into this, I was looking at your Twitter feed today and I... I was like, there's Liverpool, uh, the football club. And that's like, that's my team. And I'm like, what? I'm, I had this like kind of <laughs> dichotomy moment. I'm like, wait, I, I thought this was, uh, I thought this was Amanda's Twitter feed. Why does she have all these Liverpool things? So they're, they're <laughs> <laughs> so they're doing, um, they're, they're not doing like an NFT sort of project, right? It's collectible cards. From the, the boot room. Yeah. Congratulations. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that's a good, that's a good entree for me to talk about, um, you know, after my consensus years, I was there from 2016 through 2019, um, I stayed until I really felt that Ethereum was across that crucial line where, you know, it probably wasn't going to go away, where it was likely to stick around. Do you remember um, that? There, there was, I was really wondering that around that time. Yeah, but yeah. It was, I mean, it was a real question of like, is this thing just going to crash and burn? Yeah, does this have staying power? And of course, it still could. All kinds of things crash and burn. Um, but I, I don't think it will, though. And uh, But I wanted to bring the best practices that my teammates and I had built um, from Web3 marketing into the next generation of projects that we're building. So DeFi, DAOs, NFTs, L1s, L2s, Web3 utilities, tooling, infrastructure, those all were our bread and butter. And we'd done more token launches, retroactive distributions. We'd, we'd, we'd introduced more new blockchain products to the market than probably any other entity on earth and had just great data and great practices and pattern matching from that. And I wanted to expand um, my application of that knowledge outside of the consensus ecosystem to intersect the full range of what we could what we could work with in, in Web3. And so we started Serotonin then, myself and my co-founder, uh, Matthew Isles, to, to basically bring that knowledge to this next generation of projects. It quickly grew to become the largest Web3 marketing firm um, and still is that today. It's also opened up some new professional services verticals, starting a recruiting practice. Uh, most recruiters don't really know how to recruit um, Web3 professionals, but we being Web3 natives know all the right people and can help with that. And then also spinning up an accounting practice, which is something else that's very kind of Web3 specific um, for Web3 native companies that are uh, that have tokens and um, 
all kinds of coins on the balance sheets and want to also actively manage their treasuries. So we're spinning up more professional services verticals in serotonin and we joke about calling it McKinsey on mushrooms or the web web three McKinsey. Um, but we're trying to really own a bunch of the professional services verticals in the space. And at the same time, we also started um, serotonin's product studio. Uh, we have a product and engineering studio where we've been spinning out one product a year, but I think we might start increasing that rate. Um, but our first spin out from that engineering studio was Mojito. Um, Mojito today is the leading NFT marketplace infrastructure platform. And what that means is it's kind of like e-commerce. It's powering e-commerce. We actually call this new category D-commerce. Um, <laughs> we're trying to pioneer that term. So yeah, what so is that? What, tell me what, a little bit more about that. Decentralized e-commerce. So our idea is that um, existing brands, rights holders, IP owners will wish to sell um, NFTs, sell digital goods um, using those rights and that IP, but that they'll wish to do so on their own owned platforms. The same way that Nike goes and sells shoes on Amazon, but it also sells shoes on Nike.com. Um, and so what we are is that e-commerce software powering those sales on Nike.com of NFTs in this example. Um, so we think that there will continue to be awesome um, open platforms for selling like the open seas of the world, um, like the rareables and nifty gateways of the world. There will be the Ebays, there will be the Amazons, but we also think that in terms of backend infrastructure, there's also gonna be the Salesforce. There's also gonna be the Shopify. And that's what we're building with, um, with Mojito. It's currently the leader in that category, powers one of the best known freestanding NFT marketplaces, which is the Sotheby's metaverse, um, which did over a hundred million in sales on its platform within just a couple of months of being launched, became a pretty substantial part of Sotheby's business um, and a number of other partners and launches. And yeah, you're, you're referring to uh, Liverpool Football Club today, and it's only the beginning of, uh, of what we're building in the NFT space with sports teams. Yeah. Do you see it evolving to a point where in a metaverse, um, you know, there a lot of brands have put up, you know, um, shops or I'm not sure what to call them, you know, locations in like Decentraland. Do you see people walking into something like that and buying something in the metaverse and then it comes oh, to yeah. your house direct like it's. it's oh, yeah. I mean, so we're closely partnered with Decentraland. Um, we helped Sotheby's set up their um they have a they have a replica of the Sotheby's auction house in Decentraland. Yeah. And we've worked with a number of other partners to set up um, Decentraland activations or storefronts. And yes, I think people will shop in metaverse contexts for both digital objects and physical objects. We call this digital twin. So a lot of physical objects, when you buy them increasingly, are going to have an NFT digital object digital twin and a physical twin. Um, so you're gonna buy things in those storefronts in Decentraland and Sandbox and what have you and get something sent to your house or you'll have something that uh, becomes part of your wallet and that wallet becomes your browser, it becomes your identity, it becomes how you signal, it becomes how you achieve community. Yeah, 
Yeah, I, I was speaking to some folks that are trying to do this with um, hamburgers. It's like a burger, um, you know, the, they want to have a presence in the metaverse and then you order there and they would have kitchens set up around the country called ghost kitchens and, and the burgers and stuff would come like right to your house. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this stuff's fun. This, this stuff's fun. I mean, you can imagine a future, like a, a future where we're all in haptic suits and all have 3D printers in our houses and there's a fully immersive metaverse that everyone's happy to be in because it's so much higher quality and more interesting and less limited by uh, physical scarcity and gravity and stuff than the physical world. And then you go up to the counter of a burger joint in the metaverse and you buy something and then immediately out of your home 3D printer is, is spat the exact replica of that burger and you pick it up and you put it in your mouth. Uh, you can yeah, imagine- We're getting into Neil Stevenson territory here. Yeah, uh, there, there are a lot of- Diamond age, I think. There are a lot of loops that need to close before then. I think the most kind of, the, the, the most powerful loop that needs to close is just the blockchain doesn't have a hand with which to reach out and grab onto something in the physical world. And so the only thing you can use to link a physical and a digital object are incentives, really. And you can incentivize the linking of those things. Um, and you can create, I guess, legal contracts around the linking of those things, but there's no you know, intrinsic uh, way to way to build that into something. Um, so that that's the challenge and it's the opportunity to kind of close those loops either through incentive systems um, or through innovation, right? Like the scenario that we just talked about where we're, we're far from that in terms of actual innovation. Well, let's bring it back to the physical for a second. Um, tell me about Crypto the Musical. Um, ah, Crypto the Musical. Yeah. So Crypto the Musical is a fun project we're doing at Serotonin. We, um, we created it. It's a story of one woman's journey through starting a startup in Web3. It tells the story of Ethereum and Bitcoin and blockchain and crypto all the way up through DeFi and NFTs. We have an incredible creative team around it, thanks to our wonderful partners at CAA, Creative Artists Agency, that are, that are working on it with us. We're going to fund it through a DAO. It'll be the first ever Broadway musical funded by DAO. The plan is we're gonna have three songs from the musical that will launch in a mixtape form and be released at Coindesk Consensus Festival Austin this June. And that mixtape release will be used to promote and raise funds for the DAO We'll be looking to raise 20 million into the DAO. It'll be a fully accredited KYC investor profit sharing DAO. So you'll be able to, as an investor, receive the profits from the musical. Obviously, we don't know how it'll do, but Hamilton brought in 600% returns for investors. And we feel very confident in the team that's come together around this project. Um, and then we plan to raise that 20 million and then off to the races hoping to get our musical in theaters by end of 2023. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, we, and, and if you want to find out more about that, um, follow the musical DAO on Twitter. Um, yeah, and I will definitely put links to that in the show awesome. notes. And so everybody can check that out. And um, 
That's a great place to leave this in, as the future. We've been through your past, the present, and now into the future with uh, these DAOs and, and creating, um, yeah, it's, it's an investable um, collection, like you were saying, of, of artists and creative people who can come together and remake um, you know, certain institutions in a, in a Web3 decentralized fashion. So Amanda, thank you so much. Um, you're one of the most connected people, I think, in all of crypto. Uh, and it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Congratulations uh, to what you've been doing with both serotonin and um, uh, uh, mojito. And um, I hope you uh, all the best of luck with uh, Crypto the Musical and everything else you guys are doing. Thanks for the kind words, Matt. And thank you for having me as a guest. Yeah, always appreciate it. We'll talk soon. Sounds good. That's it for this episode of Decent People. Thanks so much for listening. Check the show notes for more information on our guests today. And make sure to look us up on the web at decential.io. That's D-E-C-E-N-T-I-A-L dot I-O. And on Twitter at Decential. Have a great day.